Well, if you, uh, if you really believe, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that was an incredible time of worship, wasn't it? And if you really believe that God is a way maker and he's a promise keeper, would you just shout amen? amen. I believe that with all my heart. And, and Elijah's right. In the world we live in, we need a way maker, don't we? We need a promise keeper. And I'm so thankful that we we're able to declare that. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's where we're going to be in this moment is 1 Peter chapter 5. And, and many of you know, as we've been the last really two months, we've been working through 1 Peter. And, and I really feel like, and I'll say it again, I really feel like probably if there was a book in the Bible that best fits the, the season that we are in as a country and even as followers of Christ, it's, it's 1 Peter, because in 1 Peter, we see at the very beginning, at the, out of the very gate in chapter 1, Peter reminds these early believers. Now remember who they were. These are early believers who are being persecuted for their faith. They are under the Roman emperor Nero, and we know Nero was a wicked, wicked man. And so these early believers are being persecuted, and many of them martyred for their faith. And so Peter reminds them out of the gate who they are. He reminds them of their identity. He says, listen, you are the elect children of God, that you belong to God. That your identity is not found in what goes on in this world. Your identity isn't found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then he kind of shifts to that while we're who we are in Christ, but then he shifts to who we are as people in this world. He calls them exiles, which is why we came up with the title for our series, Exiles, because he wanted them to know that while you live in this world, you are to live as exiles. You are to live as aliens and strangers and sojourners in this world. And so for the first couple of chapters in this book, Peter really begins to unpack how they're to live as exiles in this world. So he tells them things like this. You need to live in hope. You need to live in holiness. You need to live in submission. And you need to live in harmony when it comes to your homes. And then about midway through chapter 3, Elijah talked about it. He begins to shift the narrative a little bit, and he begins to talk about, as believers, the one thing they can expect in this world is suffering. And he begins to tell them how they can navigate the suffering that they're going to go through in this world. And I don't know about you, but it's so important for us to hear what Peter had to say in chapter 3 and chapter 4, because all of us who are followers of Jesus, we are all going to go through seasons of suffering. And Peter says, listen, as you go through those seasons, first of all, be prepared. And then he told them about being focused through that season of suffering. And then last week, we just talked about this basic truth, and it's this, is that every follower of Jesus is going to go through fiery trials. But we need to be reminded when those trials come our way that they're designed, as Peter said, to test us, to test the quantity, the quality, and the genuineness of our faith. Then in chapter 5, there's a major, major shift in Peter's narrative, and he kind of walks and kind of goes away from addressing the entire group of believers that are being persecuted, and he specifically hones in on the leadership that's guiding and leading that persecuted flock. Now, if you think about it, you may wonder, well, why is Peter saying all these things to those in the church, and then here he shifts his, his conversation specifically to the leadership of the church? Well, I think it's because of this. It's because you and I both know that when we go through uncertain times, when we go through trials, when we go through seasons like pandemics, I mean, the flock, the, the children of God typically look to spiritual leadership for guidance and direction. And Peter wanted to make sure that the leadership that was ministering to this early church, that the leadership was adequate spiritual leadership. And this leadership was going to lead them in a way that was honoring and pleasing to the Lord. So as we jump into chapter 5 here, what we're going to find out is that, this, that Peter addresses the elders of the church. 
Now, anytime you say elders in Baptist life, there, there's this, sometimes this confusion of what in the world is, who are they, what are they, what's their role, and we don't have time to get into all that, but let me kind of give a little bit of clarity to this word elder, because there are three or four words used in the Greek New Testament that are synonymous. One of them is the word elder, and typically the word elder refers to the maturity level of a position specifically the pastor position, so in the maturity level, an elder. Then you've got the word bishop and overseer, which are the same word, really, and what they refer to is the qualities of that position. Like, what are they to do? Well, obviously, an overseer is to do what? Not a true question. What do overseers do? You are so smart. They oversee things, right? And that's one of the qualities. And then you see the word shepherd, which refers to pastor, and that refers to the position. So you see elders, you see shepherds and overseers, you see uh, bishops, you see all those words, and they're all synonymous and referring to a position of someone at a mature level and someone that is leading the church that, is, that has given responsibilities and qualities to lead that church. And so we know from context that when it says elders here, that Peter's referring to the chief leadership of the church, the pastors of the church. Now in this day and time, it was not common to have a senior pastor or a lead pastor. There was a plurality of pastors. And so that's who he's referring to, those that are in leadership, not the old men of the church, but chief leadership that are the pastoral leadership. Now, in many churches that maybe you've been a part of, and I've been a part of these, there's churches that have elders, and some of them are the pastoral staff, as well as some lay elders. And that, you see that a lot, in, especially in the current climate. But in Baptist life, in Southern Baptist life, we tend to look at elders as those that are pastors in the church, those that are, are ministers in the church. So that would be myself, that would be Elijah, that would be Patrick, that'd be Pastor Mercer, and the whole minister, ministerial staff we have here at Cross Life. And so that's who Peter's talking to. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what does Peter challenge these elders with. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, if this message is about elders, couldn't you have just preached it to Elijah in a closed room and been done with this and move on, right? And I, I, could, I think it's important for us to understand what Peter says. And on one hand, I will say this out of the gate. This is a very convicting passage. And at the very end, I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do at the very end of this message. But I want you to listen to what Peter says to the elders, because at the end of this passage, he also addresses the flock. He addresses those that are the sheep, which is those that are not the pastors. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to ask you once again to stand in honor of reading God's Word. Chapter 5, verse 1, and here's what it says. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. Say that with me. Shepherd the flock, the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in ch your charge of, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. May God bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. Now, there's three things I want us to pull from this passage. And the first thing is this. I want us to look at, first of all, the charge that he gives the elders. Look with me once again in verse 1 and part of 2. He says, so I exhort you. In other words, I encourage you, elders among you, 
as fellow elder and as a witness to the suffering of Christ. In other words, Peter's given some credentials here. Hey, I'm not just any yahoo writing this letter. I'm an elder too. I'm a leader. I'm a pastor as well. <coughs> and I, I was there when Jesus suffered, and, and, and I was there during that season. So he's given his credentials here. And then he says this, a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So here's the charge that Peter gives pastors. Shepherd the flock. Now, that seems like a very basic command, or a very basic charge. <clears throat> However, you know, all the men that's here and all the men that are watching, if I told you, if you were married, if I said, listen, here's your God-given responsibility. Be the spiritual leader in your home. Everybody that's a Christian would say, okay, I know that. Whether I choose to do it or not, I know that. But if we just left it at that, there's no clarity of that, is there? There's no, there's no handles to what in the world does it mean to be the spiritual leader in the home? So when he says here, hey, pastors, shepherd the flock, the question is, what in the world does he mean? What in the world does he mean for a pastor to shepherd a flock? Do you believe your pastor should shepherd this flock? Say amen. They should. So what in the world does it mean? Now, I believe that to find out the what, we need to discuss the why. What I mean is, and before we can find out what it means to shepherd the flock, we need to ask this question, why do sheep need a shepherd? Because whether you believe it or not, the Bible refers to believers as what? Sheep. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. Now, I know we've all talked about sheep in the past, and we've made jokes about how dumb sheep are, and, and we draw the correlation, and we think maybe there's others that are, that are dumber than we are. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is this, is that we are the sheep. We belong to God. He, Jesus is our chief shepherd. So why do sheep need a shepherd. Well, let me just give you a few reasons. First of all, sheep easily get lost. They easily get lost. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. You can do your own research and find the same thing. Sheep easily get lost. In fact, that one guy I was reading a couple weeks ago said that sheep have absolutely no homing skills at all. What I mean is, if you take a sheep out of the normal environment and take them a mile down the road, they will never find their way home. Now, dogs aren't like that, are they, right? Many of you have had a dog before in your life, and you're like, we can't take care of the dog anymore, so we're going to drive 10 miles down the road, and we're going to give him to someone that we know, and they're going to raise that dog, take care of that dog. And then like three days later, you walk out on the porch, and the dog is shown back up at your house, right? Why? Because dogs have unbelievable homing skills. Sheep have none. You take them out of their environment and you put them somewhere else, at the end of the day, they're not going to make their way back. In fact, one shepherd said this, that all they will do is they will walk in a circle until they pass out. Now remember, you're laughing, but the Bible calls you sheep, right? And sometimes when we lose our way, maybe we feel like we just walk in a circle until we just kind of give out. So one reason sheep need a shepherd is because they're easily get lost. Another reason is because sheep are easily led astray. Sheep are easily led astray. I was reading an article from a shepherd in New Zealand, and the shepherd said this, that the way they would take sheep and they take the sheep to the slaughter is here's what they do. They get a male sheep, and some, some places use a, goat, a male goat, but they use a male sheep, and they take that sheep and they train that sheep. 
And that sheep, they put them inside the flock that they're wanting to take the slaughter, and then that sheep begins to bleat. That's kind of a deer terminology. Bleat, I guess that's their way of calling, saying, hey, all you other sheep, follow me. And all of a sudden, these sheep begin to follow this male sheep, and it leads it up the ramp, and then at some point, there's like a trap door. And this male sheep is dropped to the trap door so he can go back and get the rest of the sheep. But all those sheep are led all the way up to slaughter. These sheep who've been around are led astray so easily by one sheep that comes along, bleats a little bit, you know, maybe shows a little leg, and everybody's following them all the way to the slaughter. Does anybody know what they call that sheep? It's called a Judas sheep. Did you know that? As quickly and easily as Judas was led astray, so were these sheep, easily led astray. And so one reason that sheep need a shepherd is not just because they easily get lost, but they easily get led astray. And another reason that sheep need shepherd is because they are defenseless. When's the last time you seen, saw a sheep jump, right? They're not jumping. They're not really kicking. They're not scratching. In fact, one shepherd said this, that when sheep get attacked, here's what they do. They just die, that when they get attacked, they just surrender, they wave the white flag, and they just die. So why do sheep need a shepherd? Because they get lost. They are easily led astray, and they are defenseless. So here's, go back to the first question. So what does it mean to shepherd a flock? It means to address the needs of the sheep, right? Here's what it means to shepherd a flock. It means to care for the people who've gone astray. To care for the people who've walked away from their faith, care for the people who've said tragedy happened and life has happened, and they just find themselves in a place of being shattered, a place of struggling, and they've walked away. I mean, they literally have lost their way. And for someone to shepherd those people means they need to care about those people that have lost their way. Well, how do you care about those people? Well, you do several things. One thing is you, you go after them right? You go, didn't Jesus tell a story that there was a hundred sheep and one went astray? Where did the shepherd go? Did he stay with the 99 or did he go after the one? Come on, where'd he go? After the one. And to truly care for sheep, you got to go after them. You got to invest in them. You got to do life with them. And so one way to be a good shepherd is by caring for the sheep that have gone, that, that, that are lost. But also it means, it means protecting the sheep from being led astray. One thing that we all know is true is this, is that we live in a world that does all it can to share its philosophies, its ideologies with us. The world wants to do all they can to change the thinking and the worldview of Christians. And one thing for a shepherd, if they're going to shepherd the flock, not only do they need to care for those who've gone astray, but they need to protect those from being led astray. Not just care for those that are lost, but protect those from being led astray. Well, how do we do that? How do shepherds do that? Right here. Teach the Word of God. Not their opinions, not their biasness, not their preference, not their theology, but simply preach and teach Jesus and this Word. That's how shepherds protect their flock from being led astray. Now, it's not only about caring for the flock that have lost their way, not only about protecting those who have gone astray, but it's also about coming to the aid of those who are under attack. How does a shepherd come to the aid of the sheep who are under attack? Well, part of it is just by being there, by standing with them and standing up with them and doing all they can to meet their needs. So I want us all to understand that when he says, Peter tells these pastors, shepherd the flock, what does that really mean? 
It means that the pastors are designed to be there to care for those who've lost their way, to protect those and help them stay from being led astray, and to care for those and aid those who are under attack. Now, let me tell you why this is super important. Because do you notice here what Peter said? He said, shepherd the flock of God. The flock that a pastor has does not belong to him. Who does it belong to? It's God's flock. This church building that you're in, the people that fill this up on a Sunday morning, this is not Pastor Mercer's church. This is God's church. And he's the shepherd of the flock. East Campus, when we meet, if that ever gets to happen again, out at our school, I am, I, you, the East Campus is the flock that I have the privilege of ministering to, but it's not my flock. It's God's flock. And with that being said, it's important for Peter to say this because he wanted the shepherds to know that you also are going to be held accountable. How you lead the flock, you're going to be held accountable for that. And so if, if a pastor is going to be and, and really take the challenge to shepherd the flock, they must have a heart of a shepherd. Doug, what's the heart of a shepherd? Well, I just said it. Caring for those who've lost their way protecting people so they don't get led astray, and aiding people who are under attack. But not only is it that, but if you're going to truly shepherd people, part of shepherding is exercising oversight. And that leads me to the second thing I want us to see in the passage. Peter tells the, the pastors how, or the elders how elders are to exercise oversight to the flock. Well, let me in verse 2 again through verse 4. He says this, Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God have with you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those that are in charge, but being an example. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now, here's what Peter says. Here's how, you to, here's how the shepherd is to lead the flock. And there's three things I want you to write down if you're taking notes. First thing he says is you need to lead with the right attitude. If you're going to shepherd the flock, how you exercise oversight is this. You have to lead with the right attitude. Look what he says again in verse 2 there. He says, lead them not under compulsion, but how? Willingly. He says, when you lead, as a, as a pastor leads the flock, they need to lead with the right attitude. Here's what that means. Not under compulsion. You know what compulsion means, right? You do it because you're obligated to do it, or you do it because it's your duty. You do it because the paycheck. You do it because that's what you're supposed to do. He said, I, you don't, shepherds, don't lead your flock that way. Don't lead your flock because you're obligated to, or you feel like it's your duty to do it. Because here's what happens. When we lead out of compulsion, when pastors lead out of compulsion, here's what that leads them. It leads them to a lack of joy. It leads them to a place, a lack of passion. It builds up resentment, and it leads to apathy. Have you ever known a pastor that maybe wrestled with that? He says, don't lead under compulsion. You've got to have the right attitude. Your attitude can't be, I'm obligated, or it's my duty. He says, rather, lead willingly. In other words, delight in your leadership because it is your calling. Delight that you have the privilege and the opportunity that God has entrusted you with a flock. And as you lead them, your attitude shouldn't be, it's my obligation, it's my duty. My attitude should be, God has entrusted me with them and it's part of the calling of who I am. It's what God has called me to do. One of my favorite moments in the Bible is in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah lifted his fist toward heaven and cursed the day he was born. 
And you say, well, Doug, well, why is that your favorite? It seems like that's blasphemous. No, it wasn't blasphemous at all. It's literally Elijah, or, or Jeremiah acknowledging that he could not separate his life from the calling that God had put on his life. He was a prophet of God, period. Wasn't a tent maker. He was a prophet of God. And so rather than leading under compulsion, he says, I want you to lead willingly. I want you to be delighted in the call that I put on your life. And when pastors lead that way, guess what that leads to? It leads to passion, and it leads to diligence. And I just want to be honest with you in this moment is that, that this is a real pitfall for every pastor. Well, Doug, are you saying every pastor including you? Absolutely, I'm including me. This can be a real pitfall. You know why? And let me just, can I, can I just share my heart? Are you, are you okay with that? Just say amen if you're okay with that. It is easy as a pastor to be discouraged and disheartened. And you say, oh, did we do something that had nothing to do with you? The enemy is always on the move. He's always attacking. And I just want to say this all honestly because maybe you didn't know this. I mean, when I go home and pastors go home, they have the weight of their family, the weight of their marriages, the weight of their finances. But good pastors also carry home the weight of their people, carries the weight of their emotions, their finances, their struggles. I mean, there's nights that I hear stories of marriages that are falling apart or relationships that are broken or people that are struggling. And it is hard to sleep because my heart breaks for them. Pastor's heart breaks for those people. And so it's easy to become disheartened and discouraged. But Peter reminds these pastors, listen, what you're doing is you have to lead with the right attitude because this is not your job. This is your calling. And there's a difference, isn't it? You ever had a place of employment that you felt like it was a job you were clocking in and clocking out and a place that you felt like that was part of who you were? It was a calling in life. Did you approach them differently? You better believe it. And so he tells these early pastors, one way you are to exercise oversight is you have to lead with the right attitude. Then secondly, he says, you have to lead with the right motivation. Look with me in verse 2 again. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, as you lead people, you need to lead with the, with the, with the right motivation. And he uses the phrase here, not for shameful gain. And that really means using the church to build up undeserved wealth and self-promotion. That's what it means. Shameful gain is when pastors use and abuse the church to build up undeserved wealth and self-promotion. Now, I don't have enough time to talk a lot about that, but if you've turned on your television and watched any Christian channel at some point in your lifetime, you've seen exactly what I'm talking about. People that will abuse the church and the children of God to support things instead of supporting their church through the tithe. And you see it all over the place that, hey, give to me, give to me, give to me, give to me. And he says, listen, there's, as you lead, you have to have a right motivation. And that motivation can't be to build your kingdom or to build your name. Whose kingdom should the pastor be building? The kingdom of God. Whose name should the pastor be promoting? The name of Jesus. And he says, listen, as you lead people, you've got to have a right motivation. It's not about you. It's about him. Make sure you don't abuse the church and, get, and try to acquire all this undeserved wealth or all this undeserved self-promotion. It's not about you. Because here's the deal. When people lead with the wrong motivation, here's what happens. You invest in people because you're seeking what you can get out of them instead of what you can lead them to do. See, when someone has the wrong motivation, and you know this from your relationships, when someone has a wrong motivation, they tend to treat people as what can I get out of them rather than what can I pour into them. 
He says, as pastors, you lead, you have to lead with the right motivation, not for shameful gain, but he says, but eagerly. So instead of being motivated by wealth and self-promotion, be motivated by the love you have for the flock. Let me just say this to you. Whoever stands before you as your pastor better have a love for this flock. And you should expect that of him. You should expect him to lead in a way that is eager, that is passionate out of the love he has for you rather than his, than his desire just to gain wealth and just to self-promote himself. And I'm just telling you, this is a pitfall for many, many pastors. This is a pitfall maybe for all pastors at times. I'm ashamed to say this, but there's been seasons in my life, especially if you go back to the early 2000s when I was in student ministry, there was a season where I was struggling and the church I was in, I was struggling with leadership and there were days that I would go to the office and it felt like I was just punching a clock. I was going to the office not because I had passion to be there, because I had passion to do some certain things. I was going there because I had three small boys, they had mouths to be fed, I had a house payment and I had to just continue on, keep my head down, my mouth shut and just keep going that way. That was a wrong motivation. And he says, as shepherds, as you lead, you've got to lead with the right motivation, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then the third thing, he says this about exercising oversight. He says, lead with the right heart. Look with me in verse 3 and 4 again. It says this, not domineering over those in your charge, but be an examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, he says, listen, as you lead and you, and you have oversight as a pastor, lead with the right uh, motivation, lead with the right attitude, but you need to lead with the right heart. A heart that he says is not domineering. You know what that means? It means someone who's a dictator. It means someone who's a spiritual bully. Don't be that person. Don't be someone who lords over other people the authority you have based on the position you have. Don't be that person. Don't lead with a heart that is domineering. Rather, he says, be an example. So as a pastor, when you talk to the people about living life more humbly for the Lord, you ought to set the example. As a pastor, when you talk to your church and your flock about being more compassionate, guess who should lead the way? You. See, one thing that Doug is learning as I've read this passage, as I poured into it and asked God to speak to me, one thing that God reminded me of, especially in the conversation of sheep and shepherding, is this, is that sheep don't want to be driven, they want to be led. Amen? And a domineering personality try to drive sheep to do what they want to do, and they bully them into it, rather than doing what Paul or what Peter says as being an example and leading the flock the way you want them to go. And this, too, is a pitfall for every pastor. And so Peter tells these pastors, shepherd your flock. But then he also talks about exercising oversight. Do it with the right attitude, the right motivation, and the right heart. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Doug, you pretty much just preached to yourself the whole time. I did. But there's a spot for you in this. Look at me at the very beginning of verse 5. He says this, likewise, you love that word, don't you? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now watch Peter saying. He's saying this. Submit to your spiritual leaders. Submit. 
Now, there's a word there that you're going to pick up on. He says the word younger. Now, younger, and there's many theologians, and they kind of split on this. When he talks about younger, there's really two kind of schools of thought. One is he's referring to the younger men, whether it be age or immaturity in their faith, because in that day and culture, you know they didn't really address the women or the children. They addressed the men. And who are the most stubborn, pig-headed, and don't want to be moved kind of mindset? It's the younger men. It's the more spiritually immature. So some say that's who he's addressing. Others would say, no, no, he's talking to younger is just a reference to those that aren't elders. At the end day, it doesn't really matter because we know from Scripture that the flock, the sheep, are to be in submission to the shepherd as long as that shepherd is being in submission to the great shepherd. So what Peter is saying here to these early believers is this, is that your response to the flock, if you have a shepherd that is truly shepherding the flock, if you have a shepherd that's truly exercising oversight with the right attitude, the right motivation, and the right heart, you need to submit to that spiritual leadership. Now, this is awkward to talk about, but let me tell you what that means. First of all, it means having respect for the position of pastor. I'll tell you this. When we first came to, to be in view of a call, uh, one comment that my oldest son James made that I found interesting, and I found a little awkward as well, too, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, man, that's, that's pretty awesome, is everybody called me pastor, pastor, pastor. See, where I come from, I just dug. I mean, I, I mean, there was, I mean, it was just like Doug, and it wasn't like Brother Doug, it wasn't anything, it was just Doug. And I, I, prefer, I prefer that, honestly, because I'm just like everybody else. And James like, Doug, Dad, why do they call you pastor? And it dawned on me, it's because of the respect that people have for the role. And that's what it means to be submission. You have respect for the role, not necessarily the person in the role. In fact, I'm 47 years old, and I barely can remember the first presidential election that, that, that when I was a kid. I remember Jimmy Carter being president, and then I remember Ronald Reagan coming to the scene. And here's the one conclusion I have over four decades. You ready? Not everybody ever likes the one who sits in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter what party you're with, right? But we're called to respect the position, aren't we? We're called to yield to the authority of that position. And the same thing's true in the church, that submitting to leaders is, 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 is basically respecting that position, but it's also realizing this. Submission is also realizing that you need pastoral leadership. Can I say this? I need pastoral leadership. I find myself having conversations with Pastor Mercer because I need those. I find myself having conversations with a pastor friend of mine who lives in Tyler, Texas, because I need those. I find myself talking to Tim Dix, who's another pastor here, because I need those. We all need pastoral leadership, every one of us. And to submit to the spiritual leadership is acknowledging, I need pastoral leadership. But lastly, submitting also means this. It means having a heart to follow that leadership. Now, I'm not talking about blind following. I'm not talking about not having a voice. I'm talking about when you feel like your shepherd is someone who's truly shepherding the flock, who truly is leading with the right attitude and motivation and the right heart, that you would humbly submit yourself to follow. One thing that God has taught me over the 29 years in ministry is this, is that I'm a better leader when I have become a better follower. And that's true. So he says to the flock, here's your response. You need to make sure that you submit to the spiritual leaders of the church. Now, I know what for some of you, you're thinking, okay, this message is not really for me, right? You're thinking, hey, this is not really something that's for me. Well, let me just say this to you, because I think it is for you. I think what we learn in this passage is this. We learn from, as a, from a pastor what he should expect out of his flock. We understand as a pastor that a flock, that if you're truly shepherding and you're truly leading the right way, they should be a flock that, that submits to that leadership. But most importantly, what you're learning and what we're all learning tonight is this, and this moment is what you should expect out of your shepherd. 
That is a flock, what should they expect out of their shepherd? You should expect a shepherd who truly shepherds the flock, a shepherd who cares for his flock, a shepherd who, who, who longs to aid his flock, a shepherd who protects his flock, a shepherd who leads the right way. You should expect that out of your shepherd. And if the church of God, if East Campus, if our church, our local body of believers is going to make a difference in the world and we're going to thrive and we're going to be the light of Christ, this is how the church has to function. Now I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And I mean it from the depth of my heart. Here's the commitment after this message I'm going to ask everyone to make. And it's going to seem selfish on the surface, but I want you to hear my heart. I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you, will you commit to praying for me? And will you commit to praying for Elijah and Patrick? Now, I don't want your kind of, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, will you get before the throne of God and would you lift our names up? Would you get before the throne of God and say, God, would you protect these men? Protect them from evil. Keep the devil away from them. God, would you continue to refine them and grow them and show them and give them wisdom? I'm asking you, would you go before the throne of grace and would you cry out on our behalf? You know why? Because I want to be that kind of pastor. I want to be the kind of pastor who shepherds well, that cares deeply, protects the flock, AIDS and Tamani. I want to be the one who leads with the right motivation, who leads with the right attitude, and who leads with the right heart. And sometimes I struggle, sometimes I fail, and sometimes I am a disappointment. But I'm asking you as the church to go before the throne of God and pray for us. Will you do that? And so when people say, Michael Guzman always tells me, Pastor, I'm praying for you, I don't take that lightly. Because you're going to the creator of the universe and saying, would you move in my pastor's life? And I'm just humbly asking, would you pray for me? Would you pray for Elijah? Would you pray for Patrick? Because we're to shepherd the flock. And then here's my commitment to you. And here's Elijah's commitment to you and Patrick's commitment to you that with everything in us, we will love you. With everything in us, we will care for you. And with everything in us, we will pray for you. We will take you before the throne of God and intercede on your behalf too. So if you will make that commitment, I'm telling you the commitment I'm going to make. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me if you would. Everybody stand. To me, one of the most fascinating moments in Scripture is when God told Aaron to pray a blessing over Israel. And you know it. It's Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, and here's the prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his countenance up to you and may he give you peace. We're going to sing a song that's right out of Numbers chapter 6. And during this time, my prayer is simply this is that this song that we're about to declare would be the starting point for us truly praying for one another, not just when it crosses our mind, but deliberately and intentionally going before the throne of God and praying for your pastors and us deliberately and intentionally going before the throne of God and praying for the flock. And I pray this song begins that journey for us. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you. I thank you for the flock that you've entrusted me with. 
God, every day I feel the weight of that. Every day the enemy wants to come and talk about my inadequacies, my failures, my setbacks, my shortcomings. And Lord, I, I, I know that I have those, but Lord, I want to lead in the way that's honoring to you. I want to lead in a way that reflects the chief shepherd, Jesus. So God, I pray with everything in me that for those that are watching that are part of East Campus and those that are in the room with us, that they would commit to pray for us to pray against the enemy, to pray against temptation, to pray for wisdom, to pray for clarity, to pray for vision, to pray for people to be saved, to pray for opportunities, just to pray and pray and pray and intercede on our behalf. And God, as shepherds, as we shepherd this flock, we commit to pray for that flock, a flock that at times is hurting, struggling, lost, been led astray, and under attack. So God, I pray as we sing this song, it wouldn't just be a song. It would be a very cry from the depths of our heart. That Lord, as I sing over this flock, I do pray that, that you would go before them, that you would come after them, that you would be beside them, that you would be all around them, that they would know that you are in them, you're with them, and you are for them. God, we have an enemy that's trying to take us out, render us ineffective. And tonight, we stand against him. Tonight, we say, no more, devil. And tonight, we say, Lord, we are going to battle the enemy, not with swords, not with weapons, but with prayer and seeking and calling on the only name that matters, the name which is above every other name, the name of Jesus. We love you, Lord. Move in this time. Speak to us. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen and amen.